Hello everyone. Welcome to God Talk with Tara. I am Tara. Um, I am off my game tonight and I'm going to come and speak anyway because the Lord is telling me I cannot fall further behind in what I am supposed to be saying. Um, so we're going to begin with prayer and we're going to move on from there and hopefully the Lord will allow me to make time tomorrow night to move on to the other part of the message that is in my mind already as a result of my activities tonight. Um, so let us start with praying. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you for your promises to your people. <clears throat> thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you, Lord God, that you are faithful when we are not, and that you have been faithful from the beginning of the world, that you have had a plan and a purpose, and you have moved throughout creation, Lord God, and that you invite us, Father, to step into your plans, that you invite us, Lord God, to be reconciled to you, to dwell in your love and in your mercy and in your grace. Thank you, Father, for all that you do and all that you are. Lord, I pray tonight that the words that I speak would be your words, that I would be made small, Father God, that Jesus would be magnified, that your word would be magnified. I pray for the ears that will hear this, Lord God, that you would open them at just the right moment to hear what you would say to them, Lord God. I pray, Father, that we will lay a foundation tonight for the words that are to come. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a fresh vision of what you intend us to know of you. Of how you intend us, Lord God, to behold you so that we may become more your image. I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to see you in your creation in one another and in this time. We thank you, Father, for all you do and all you are, and we ask this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're working our way through Romans, and I discovered once again this week that we're working our way through Romans in um, in a group of Methodists, and many of our brothers and sisters in the Methodist movement right now are in a time of deep divide. They are in a time of deep turmoil and a time of deep pain. Um, I know I have mentioned before disaffiliation here and how our church had gone through that process and many other churches are in that process. Uh, and the presenting issue has to do with issues of human sexuality and um, and it causes turmoil and pain. And as a result of that, when you come into a book like Romans, which begins with a very brief praise to the Lord and then dives into several chapters of sin that open with condemnation of homosexual activity and lesbian activity and, um, the reality is, is we get really hung up on those verses. And on the one hand, you have those that want to push to focus there and use that to beat people over the head that are um, 
pushing for more inclusivity within the UMC. And then you have others who want to point to that and say, but what about? But what about? And honestly, those people that say, but what about, if they go on to chapter two, what they will find is Paul very loudly after the list of sins that he has just laid out, condemning those who are reading the letter for judging others while they are sinning. And the reality is, is one of the things that, that this book does, um, I had mentioned, I started doing the preaching, um, preaching block through Seedbed on this to prepare sermons. And that was one of the things that came up today is that part of the point of Romans is a leveling. It is a leveling of all of us. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is a leveling of Jew and Greek. It is a leveling of barbarian and, and uh, learned. It is a leveling of all mankind at the foot of the cross with the recognition that we are all under the wrath of God because we all have in us a root of capital S sin um, that must be removed, that we are incapable of removing ourselves, that required, that required something outside of us to come and rescue us from the muck and the mire of sin. And because we are surrounded in the muck and the mire of sin, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all wickedness and evil. And so what we need is the mercy of God on a rescue mission. And that is the story of the gospel. But one of the things that, um, that JD had pointed out last week and has been pointing out, um, as he works through this in the wake-up call, is that the book of Romans does not begin with sin. The story of God does not begin with sin. And that was brought up today that, you know, we, we kind of want to focus in Genesis 3. We get to, you know, we want to focus on the sin. We want to point our fingers at people and look at you terrible, sinning, awful, terrible people over there. And it's all your fault that the world has gone to hell. Um, we have this mentality that we want to pick up the story in the sin part. So we read the book of Romans and a lot of times we'll run right through those first 17 verses of chapter one, because what we want to do is get to the important part where Paul tells us all about what we're not supposed to do and how, how we have fallen away. And so we overlook that beginning part as nothing more than sort of a salutation or an opening. Um, and it's a little bit easier to see why we sort of do that, because he is very much uh, greeting the Roman church. He is very much talking to them. But the fact of the matter is, is there is nothing in scripture that's not there on purpose. And Paul, as JD was pointing out, is mirroring the story of God. And so here's one of the things that I wanted to get clear in all of our minds here as we begin this. The story of scripture is not the story of man. 
Say that one more time. The story of scripture is not the story of man. Mankind is not the hero of the Bible. Mankind is not the ultimate protagonist of scripture. God is the hero of the Bible. He is the author. He is the finisher. He is the main character of scripture. Without God, without God, the Bible is nothing more than a dystopian, apocalyptic, everybody goes to hell and dies. Well, maybe not because, well, no, everybody goes to hell and dies. It would just get here a lot faster if there is no God because God is good and he is love and he is justice and he is righteousness and he is mercy and kindness. And without him, he is the ultimate of all of those things. Without him, those things would cease to exist. And so without God, the Bible is not the Bible. We as human beings are not the main characters of scripture. We never are. Even when we read the passages about Abraham and David and, um, and Mary and Joshua and Jacob and Isaac and we read the stories of Peter and James and John and Stephen and Paul. They are not the main character. They're not the hero of the story. The hero is God who reveals himself in the incarnate Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And so we have to get that in our minds and really understand that if we are to have an understanding of sin. And so before we dive into this concept of sin in Romans, um, we need to, we need to begin. We need to come to the beginning of the story, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the story that God has given us to reveal himself to mankind. And so I'm going to look a little bit at Romans here, but I want to go first over to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole creation story. I'm going to bounce us down just a little bit. And God spends these days creating everything. And then he comes to, and then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. I'm going to skip down a little bit again. 
just to the end of this segment. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So we have the beginning. Now, Genesis 2 is a vignette of a close-in of the story of the creation of mankind, where God then comes into the garden that he has made and he builds up some mud and he breathes his very own life into this form that becomes the first man. And he creates this man in his image. He puts him in the garden and, um, and he talks with him and he teaches him. He, the man helps to name all of the animals and the livestock and, and then God makes a mate for him. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And that's how this ends. Um, and so the Lord created man in his image. He created a male and a female. He created them to leave their parents and to become one flesh. And that was God's design. And so we see that in the beginning, right? Man is made and he is good. And so that's the first part of the story of God's creation. That is the beginning of God's creation when he reveals the earth and how it has come to be. Um, and then I want us to pop over to Psalm 139. 13 is where we're going to start. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. So again, we have a beginning. We have a beginning here of the psalmist that, that describes this process of God drawing each of us into creation, that he sees us before we are made, that he knows us in our mother's womb, that he has intricately put us together in just the way he desires us to be in order for us to become the people that he has created us and called us to be. And so we have this picture of God moving and working and creating precious, good things. That is the beginning of the gospel. That comes before the rest. So first we look at in the beginning was good news. Okay. So we're going to come back into Romans 1. And we already kind of looked at Romans 1 a little bit last week when we were talking about calling um, or identity. That, that we are called. So this is verse 6, right? You are also among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ and called to be his holy people. You are loved by God and called to be his holy people. 
Um, now we go on from there and we look at Paul, and I touched on something in this that just kind of cracked me up, and I, I'm going to kind of look at that just for a second, but it's really a side trip. We're going to go ahead and go through verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit, is preaching the gospel of his son, is witness or is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So I want us to see this here at the beginning of Romans. Paul does not begin, as he does with Galatians, by the way, with a scolding about how wicked and terrible and evil these people are. Paul begins... By telling them that they are called to belong to Jesus Christ, by telling them that they are loved by God and called to be his holy people, by telling them that he is praying for them and that their faith is renowned all over the world and that God can testify to the fact that he prays for them and that he has been longing to come to them and that he's obligated to them to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. Now, this is kind of where I want to come to in the end, the I'm not ashamed of the gospel and him wanting to go preach in Rome. But the first thing I want to hit on is, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you. Do you know how comforting that is to me? So as much as I hate DISC assessments and I hate some of the homework I have been doing in my class for pastoral counseling, um, I have to say time management really is not my strong suit. That is one of the things it touched on. Um, and I have a difficult time sometimes where I plan things and things seem to come up to prevent me from being able to accomplish them. So I have a plan to do these things many times and I long to do these things. And yet... <laughs> And yet things prevent me from getting them done. Um, as I was reading this over the Lord, I, I swear almost laughed in my head at how I have been struggling because I've talked about this here, how I have been struggling with trying to figure out what kind of a schedule I'm supposed to be keeping with these, these um, 
these podcasts and how I feel kind of guilty when I don't do it as often as I think I should, or when I miss a night like I did last night for homework or whatever it is, I, I set these things in my own mind that I make this plan that I'm going to do these things and I am prevented. Now, most of the time, it would be easy to look and say, well, you just did a bad job managing your time. But the reality is, is there are an awful lot of times where something comes up that I have no control over, where there's literally things that prevent me from doing what I expected to do, what I desired to do. A lot of times they are God things that prevent me from being able to do those things. And so I am, I am comforted by the idea that Paul sometimes had plans that he was unable to follow through on at the time that he intended to do them. Because I believe that that is a God thing in my life. I get frustrated when people tell me, um, like one of my textbooks did, that time needs to be managed because it has taken me a very long time to come to a place where my time is submitted to God and where I am willing to not have a plan in order to allow for him to move me where I need to be and where I need to go. Now, I do know that sometimes I need plans. There are certain things that I need to have stable in my week of, of things going on so that Sunday mornings need to be church. And if they're not, my life goes sideways. Uh, I need other things in the week to give a little bit of structure here and there for all of the flexibility to hang on. But the fact is, is God prevents me from doing things sometimes. And he also encourages me to do things other times. And I have spent a long time learning and so I feel better knowing that I'm in good company, even as I am mindful that I need to be careful that it's not me preventing things from, from going the way I want um, and that that is a God thing. <laughs> but anyway, so I want to come back actually, though, to, to where I wanted to go tonight with this. Um, it's really interesting reading this. I actually am doing a little bit of study in the background on this so that I can plan sermons, and this actually was supposed to have been a planned sermon, and it really isn't, um, but I was doing, before the preaching block this morning, I actually went and did some background research on Romans, because I remembered that N.T. Wright had written the entry in the interpreter's Bible for Romans that he, he did the commentary for it in there. So, and I really love N.T. Wright. I've, I've looked at that commentary before on Romans. Um, and it's a really awesome, uh, perspective and look at it. So I decided I would go back and sort of start at the beginning and read through that, the introduction and all of what he had to say. Um, and a couple of things stand out at me. One of them is this concept of the righteousness of God. He he goes into what that means because we use this word righteousness and it doesn't really, we think it's a moral thing and it's really not a moral issue. Um, it is a standing issue. It is a um, covenantal issue. 
So the righteousness of God in the context of Jewish understanding is about God's faithfulness to fulfill the promises that he made. And so you have this concept of covenantal promise that comes with righteousness, which is really amazingly interesting because when we talk about that here, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What it's actually saying is the faithfulness of God to his promises that were made to the Hebrew people has been revealed. So the promises of God have been fulfilled is what this says. Um, and then you have the, the concept of righteousness as in a righteous judge. So impartiality is part of that. Um, judging properly um, between, between parties is, is a part of that righteousness concept. Um, and the concept of covenant and covenant fulfillment from what N.T. Wright was saying is closely associated to the concept of covenantal love that God promises and displays throughout the Old Testament that culminates in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so you have this gospel that amplifies the righteousness of God and puts it in connection with a covenantal concept of the love of God that is being revealed. So a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So the righteousness of God comes from his faithfulness from first to last. And then it says the righteous will live by faith. Um, I didn't actually read the part that, that goes into that, but that concept of righteousness and the righteousness of God, the promises of God, the fulfillment of God is important. Because what we have to remember about the promises of God that he made to Abraham, the promise he made to Abraham before the law, so you got to remember the Abrahamic promise came before Moses, well before Moses, like 400 plus years before Moses. We have the promise of God to Abraham, not only that there's going to be a promised land and a promised people, but that the people of Abraham, the family of Abraham, the people of God that God has called and set apart as holy for himself, that through that family, he is going to bless the nations of the world. So it's not that the Israelites are set apart to be God's people and, and the rest of the world can go to hell. That's not the point. The promise made to Abraham is that God is setting his people aside and apart in order for him to bless and rescue the nations through the people of Israel, through the people of Abraham. And so when we see the righteousness of God, the faithfulness of his covenant promises um, revealed in the gospel, what we see is the promise to Abraham fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. And now it's not just for the Jew. It was first for the Jew, but it is then to the Gentile. And he has made them all one family, the family of God, in fulfillment of the promise that he made to Abraham. Now, I'm sorry, that's very cool to me. <laughs> but the point of this is that this is where 
Paul begins. He begins with the good news that God is a promise keeper, that God is faithful, that in the beginning, God created a world and called it very good. And that he, from the beginning, because of his faithfulness, called you to belong to Jesus Christ, told you that you are covenantally loved by a faithful God and called you to be his holy set-apart people through which he rescues the world. So remember that we become the family of Abraham. That's a big theme in Romans is that we become the family of Abraham, that the Gentiles are grafted into the family of Abraham. And God has promised that through the family of Abraham, through the offspring who is Jesus Christ, who then adopts the rest of us into the family of God, he will rescue creation and rescue mankind. And so from the beginning of the Bible, we have a God who creates, he creates that which is good. He creates us in his image. And scripture tells us that from the beginning, he already had the perfect plan to reconcile the world to him. And I have to say, I run into issues here because my brain says, okay, but why did he make it the way it is? If he knew that we were going to sin and break his creation, why would he do that? I don't know the answer to that. Other than people much smarter than me, and this is really kind of where I come to logically too, is something about the requirements for us to become mature in our relationship with God required the circumstances to be allowed to be the way that they are. In other words, I believe that there were options in the garden and that once Adam made a choice to do things his own way, the path was set, but God already knew that that was what was going to happen. I don't think it's predestined in the sense that determinism, I, I have a very different view of that. It's interesting getting into all that, but we're not going to tonight because that'll take us hours. Um, and there's one more thing I wanted to look at here. So we know that Paul here is writing to the church that is already formed in Rome. So he's already talking to those who were called to belong to Jesus, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. He knows that they are a church there already that believes in Jesus Christ because their faith is being reported all over the world. Um, and so Paul is speaking to a church that has already been planted. As I understand it, Peter was the one that probably planted this church in Rome. He is talking to this church here in Rome and says to them, I am obligated to both the Greeks and non-Greeks, to both the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So I have to ask myself, 
here. Why is it that Paul wants to go preach the gospel to a church that already believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? And I think this is sort of important as a, as a kind of foundational thing before we dive into sin. Because he goes right from this of I'm not ashamed of the gospel into the, the concept that, you know, now we've gotten past the, the good news at the beginning that God is a good God who loves us and created us and made us and he had a plan from the beginning. And we get to the bad news, which is the reason why God needed a plan from the beginning. Um, and so I think it's important that we understand something. And I touched on this in, in the concept of um, shame a couple weeks back. This idea that I am not ashamed of the gospel. Um, I think the reason that Paul and the others actually, and we need to preach the gospel to those who already know Jesus Christ as Lord is that the gospel is not just the words on the page that Jesus Christ was the incarnate son of God, that he lived and a perfect life, that he died, was crucified, buried, was raised and went to heaven. That's important. That's very important. We need to, we need to communicate those factual things about the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. But a big part of being able to communicate the gospel is to be able to speak in a way that people can relate to why it is good news that God came off his throne and made himself into a baby and died. Because realistically speaking, the gospel is not good news unless we know why we needed to be rescued. And so we've had this, this wrestling, you know, people want to focus so much on their sin and, you know, that's not really the good news. Well, it is though. And I don't want to focus us on our sin because it is important and critical. And we're going to come to this next, uh, next go around. Um, well, maybe the one after. It is important and critical for under, us to understand the reason that we need to recognize our sin, the reason that we need to understand our sin. And, and Paul gets into that in chapter two. It is not so that we can dwell in it and be miserable and sad. We talked about that in, you know, a couple of weeks ago. It is though that each one of us has a testimony and a story of how Jesus Christ is good news specifically here and now for us today. And so Paul had a story, a testimony of how Jesus Christ was good news to him at the time that was relevant to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, how Jesus Christ had transformed him and overcome his sins and how Jesus had demonstrated the righteousness and the promise of God and how the righteousness and the promise of God was relevant 
to those who were being called to belong to Jesus Christ, how it was relevant to their lives to allow them to be the righteous who live by faith. And so it is important for us to begin from there. It is important for us to begin with Jesus Christ as good news. And it is important for us to be able to come and speak the good news of Jesus, not with condemnation and not with pointing fingers, but with humility and recognition of what we have been saved from of what the gospel means to us. And I'm always very leery of the, what does the Bible mean to me? Because I think it's very important that the Bible means what it meant to the original writer before it means what it means to me. But at the same time, the gospel is meant to be timeless. It is not meant to be bound in time and space as far as its effectiveness goes. It is for all those who are far off who will believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And so it is important for us to be able to contextualize it, to be able to speak as witnesses to Jesus Christ. And to be able to speak that to one another so that we can encourage one another with our faith. I love that part that we can be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Is that not a beautiful image? So tonight I pray that we would open our hearts to hear the next parts of this. Because as we work our way through Romans, it will hurt. That is the recognition that I came to this week. As we work our way through Romans, it will hurt. Our hearts will hurt. Unless we are absolutely calloused and hard-hearted, our hearts will hurt as we work through Romans. And they should. But there's hope. And so we need to keep first the vision of a good and righteous, promise-keeping, faithful, loving God before our eyes as we look at for understanding what happens when we turn from that loving God who chases us anyway. So that's as we move forward. I pray, hmm, Pray, Father, that you would touch hearts and minds tonight. I pray that you would open us, Lord, to what you need us to hear. I firmly believe, Lord God, that in this time of struggle and turmoil among so many of my brothers and sisters in Christ who are fighting over the very specific sins that pop up in this section, I believe, Lord God, you have brought us to this study on purpose to help us have conversations that address these things, not from our own space, not from our own hearts, not from our own minds, but from the foundation of your word, from the foundation of the good news, bad news, good news of scripture, from the foundation of the truth that you are the hero of the, of the scripture, that we are merely supporting players 
Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ as we move through this. Help us to keep our thoughts fixed on Jesus Christ as we move through this. Help us to be filled with your Holy Spirit so that we would understand your revelation to us of who you are and who you call us to be. We thank you, Father, for this in the name of Jesus and in the power of your spirit, Lord God, and all for your honor and glory. Amen. Be blessed and be a blessing.